Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown show. A show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality, and creating change. This summer, President Trump announced that transgender people will be banned from serving in the military in any capacity. He cited the tremendous medical cost and disruption of transgender people to the military and reverse the Obama-era decision to support those who would live openly as transgender while in service of their country. Immediately, veterans from all branches of the armed forces sounded off against the decision. LGBT and human rights organizations quickly filed two lawsuits to prevent the ban from being enforced. Joining us today on Collections by Michelle Brown is Sharon Davenport, a Vietnam-era Navy veteran. Char is a Michigan field organizer for the National LGBTQ Task Force, Faith-Based Gender Justice and Allyship Project. The task force is an organization that has been promoting equality for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer communities for more than 40 years. She's helped pass non-discrimination ordinances across Michigan and works with the National Center for Transgender Equity. She's often in Washington, D.C., lobbying her representatives, including a recent trip, to support measures to curb gun violence. Working with numerous Michigan-based and national organizations as a transgender activist, Shar has de- dedicated her life to achieving equality for trans people in the workplace, health care, public accommodation, voter rights and education and has helped train dozens of new advocates and leaders in the trans movement. She studied journalism, English, and creative writing. During the Reagan years, she was a Washington, D.C.-based journalist before becoming a leading market research analyst in the photographic and digital printing industries. She's previously been a teacher at numerous colleges and high schools in Michigan and New York. She's also a special lecturer in writing and rhetoric at Oakland University. Nothing is nearly as important to Shire as her two cats, three children, two grandchildren, and her many, many friends. Shire, welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you, Michelle. It's a beautiful day outside. Yes, it Yes, it is. You know, I mean... You have such a rich background. I mean, a lot of it has to do with, with service. I mean, I think that being a teacher is one of the, the biggest service uh, jobs that people don't think of it that way, but really you're doing a service by educating and preparing people for it. I mean, you have a, a broad background. You were in journalism. I mean, you've done all of these things. 
was it something in your family that said, you know, how you were reared that said, we give back, we serve, we care about our community? Wow, that's a great question. You know, my, um, I, I grew up, I, my first 18 years, I should say, uh, where I lived up in uh, near Bay City, and my father uh, actually was a teacher, a uh, special education teacher, and then an administrator for a number of years, and he helped uh, start a food uh, for faith program at a local uh, Episcopal church up there, and we would, and I would help him occasionally, and uh, we would serve upwards of 120, 200 people a week uh, every Sunday. And so um, he was always running for office. He was, he was just constantly involved in the local community up there. He, unfortunately, I should say, um, was much more conservative than I am. And, uh, but, you know, he had a really good heart and he really cared about people. And uh, so, yeah, maybe I adopted some of that uh, from him or inherited, I should say. Um, and both of my grandfathers were Episcopal priests as well. So, yeah, there's a long history of, uh, of dedication to the community. He served on a lot of different boards and city councils and so on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wow. Well, so... That that faith, you know, and I know that with the task force, you are involved with faith issues. Um, do you find every now and then, like, you, you're hearing the good, the bad, and the ugly that came from growing up with, you know, the strong Episcopalian influence? Do you find that gives you empathy, but also were you able to give insight, you know, to people as to how to overcome homophobia, transphobia, and or even just that horribly conservative part that's not ready to reach out and and embrace and be inclusive? Well, you know, the, the, the fact of the matter is he never, he really had a hard time um, accepting me. And, uh, and so, you know, we had our differences there and he often, um, uh, he wasn't very accepting of the LGBTQ community um, uh, at all. <laughs> and uh, it wasn't until later in life, I think, uh, that he, he seemed to, um, um, he seemed to be struggling with coming to terms with it. Uh, but it was shortly before he passed that uh, he passed in, 2014 we actually both had cancer at the time and I had kidney I had kidney cancer and his cancer was terminal um, and was pretty much all over his body I guess inside and at the time uh, my prognosis was was just about as bad actually but he sat down, we sat, or I sat down with him in the hospital, and he, and he told me that what I always felt was this, and have since then, for the last few years I've thought about this, and I've shared this story, 
that he came to this conclusion that he had been praying uh, for the wrong thing, he said. He kept praying for um, God to change me, uh, to, to um, come into my heart and make me understand the error of my ways, I guess. And then he looked at me and he said, but I was praying for the wrong thing the whole time. And I had no idea what he was going to say next. And what he said was, what he should have been praying for was for God to teach him how to love me more, how to love me better. And, um, and he told me I was beautiful. And um, that was really the last conversation we had um, about this. He, he died just a few months later, so... But um, I'll never forget that because he came to that on his own. No one sat mm-hmm. down with him and taught him that. He just figured it out. And I was always impressed by that. And I, I share that story with people. I'm not a, I'm not, uh, I, even though it, when I do go to church, when I'm not working for the task force on my own, I tend to go to to Episcopal uh, churches. But um you know, it was, the Episcopal Church was very conservative for a long time. And, um, but I think now I look at what the Episcopal Church is doing in, in particular or specifically, and, you know, there are transgender, um, um, transgender Episcopal priests. We have you know, lesbian bishop and so on and so forth. They're very, um, still kind of conservative in terms of their approach, perhaps, to religion, but very accepting of diversity at the same time. I'm not sure if that answers your question. Well, yeah, um, you know, and and I think that 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 is so beautiful, and that's a truth that, you know, I wish that often people say, because I often tell people, although my mother was very accepting, it wasn't until, like, those last, and now that I'm able to look at it, those golden moments with my father, that he was able to, to like you said, that, that being, recognizing, you know, who needed to have what the work that he needed to do, and it wasn't to change me. And, you know, and, yeah. and I... Yeah, and I think that that is so that is so beautiful that you know, like often I know I don't tell people to you know don't be a, a masochist and keep going back and every time that that you that you're going to get beat up and beat down, but uh-huh. sometimes in those final precious moments there can be that, you know, and and I often believe that in part, and I hear that so much in what you were doing. You were living your truth, and it's watching you live your truth. I bet he saw a lot of the seeds that he had sown into you. He just thought they were, the flower was going to bloom one way, and you bloomed another way. But it still came from the same seeds of giving back to the community, being engaged, and being involved. Absolutely. You know, I think he... Um I think he, he, it was like he finally saw me. I, I, I mean, I would, I would be lying if I said that, um, that I didn't wish that, 
you know, I had that recognition from him from the beginning. Um, and I was, and it was a sore spot between us for many, many years. We didn't talk pretty much for most of, um, uh, most of the 90s, actually. Uh, we, we just did not talk and, um, at all. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, he was a World War II veteran. Mm-hmm. And and uh, so, you know, he had this kind of uh, John Wayne or Lee Marvin thing about him, you know. It was like, like you just kind of said, well, this is just an old horse, you know, and it's not, he's not going to change. Um, but, you know, I don't know. Maybe, maybe this, you know, we're all going to get there and maybe – maybe in that moment you begin to take stock of yourself and and you look at, you know, you look at your garden, so to speak, what you planted and how it mm-hmm. grew. And you realize, well, I, you know, there's nothing I can do about it now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just have to, have to take what came up. And, and, uh, and I too also, um, you know, I would. I think he was the most at that moment. He was at his most vulnerable, and and I think it takes strength, great strength, to be vulnerable. Um, and um, and I think he resisted um, that vulnerability for most of his life. And then and then I think when he was faced with it, ultimately. Uh, he embraced it, and mm. so so I'm glad that he did. I'm not bitter uh, at all, but um, but I think it filled the hole that would have been in my life um, from that you know for the rest of my life. Mm. And so I'm I feel very lucky actually because most a lot of trans people I don't know if I I think most of the trans people I know. Um, never get that from their family, and mm-hmm. it's, it's so sad. It, it's uh, it makes the difference. It can make the difference. Mm-hmm. Now, you are a Navy veteran, and first and foremost, I want to thank you for your service. You were well, saying that you. your father, yeah, you know, your father had been <clears throat> in the military. When mm-hmm. you wanted to. Was that part of the reason why you joined the Navy? I mean, I mean, did you have a Navy family, or why did you choose the Navy, and why did you want to serve? Ah, wow, that's a loaded question. <laughs> um, well, first of all, I enlisted in 1974, so I, I, it was, um, you know, the the Vietnam War had pretty much wound down uh, by then. Um, but, you know, I was a mess um, back then. I was 18 years old, trying to navigate my way through a small conservative town, a factory town, and um, and just, uh, I would, you know, I wish I could say I ran in uh, with the wrong crowd, but I think I was part of the wrong crowd, you know, or whatever, however you want to phrase it. I wasn't innocent in... In this, and I knew I had to get out of out of where I was, 
because I was headed for a lot of trouble. I wasn't very big. In fact, I was probably the smallest person except for one girl in my graduating class. And um, um, I could see that where I was headed uh, was uh, a lot of drugs and probably some crime and some dead-end jobs. And I didn't feel that I could stay in the house with my parents any longer. Mm -hmm. And um, factories were beginning to uh, lay people off. And so I was uh, contemplating my future, and I happened to be walking downtown Bay City. It's not very big, but I was walking downtown Bay City, and... Um, a Navy recruiter flagged me down and I walked into his office. I took a test and they said I could be anything I want, which was an interesting proposition on a lot of levels. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, and I, and I enlisted. It wasn't out of, you know, uh, I, I don't want to, ruin a good story here, but it wasn't necessarily, at least initially, out of a deep sense of patriotism. But I also knew that I could travel. Um, Mm -hmm. The one thing that the Navy did was travel. You went everywhere. And I really saw this as an opportunity to see as much of the world as I could. And, uh, you know, my grandmother, my great-grandmother, I should say, on my mother's side, told me when I was uh, really little, very young, she said, you know, see as much of the world as you possibly can when you're young. Because when you get old like me, and she was old back then, and she said, um, you, won't, you won't be able to travel. And so that, that was in my mind as well. Um, it was only after I had enlisted that I could see um, the pride that my father had in me. And I was glad that he was happy. But it, in a sense, his pride was now Char. Of course, my name wasn't Char. He called me Charlie. But now Charlie you know, is, is a man. And, mm. and quite frankly... Um, I had hoped that that's what the Navy would do for me, is that it would um, it would be a kind of a hyper-masculine, that wasn't in my vocabulary at the time, but a hyper-masculine um, environment. And, uh, you know, I would get myself right, uh, so to speak. I was, a, you know, I was pretty, I knew who I was. Mm-hmm. I thought I thought this could be like a cure to make me who I should be. And um, you, you know, yeah. although you know your story took place back then, I have talked to young GBTQ people and mm-hmm. and some straight people. And other than the fact that the jobs in the factories weren't going away, they're gone, you know. Those were, yeah. I mean, it's almost, I mean, a lot hasn't changed as to why they went into it. And, and that part like, well, they thought that, and also that, that sentiment, particularly amongst 
my trans brothers and sisters, and also among some of the gay men I know, it was like mm-hmm. that, that, that hoping that that experience would somehow help them, you know, come in tune with the rest of the world. But, um, and then afterwards, that there were benefits that they picked up from having that military experience. Sure, sure. That's that's a great way to put it, actually. And I think um, in the far fewer words that I did. (laughs) But, um, yeah, I, I, you know, and while I was in the military, um, I had met, um, that's really when I became aware um, that transgender was even a thing. Um, I, I just didn't know. And, I mean, um, the, even the word um, was foreign to me. I think I knew, um, I knew of, um, you know, some people that had been in the media, Christina Jorgensen specifically, and, oh, um, I had heard of Sylvia Rivera, and Marcia Jackson and so on, but they were like these mythical creatures, you know, to me, living up in Bay City. And uh, there was nothing in my world that reflected me in any way whatsoever that I was aware of. And so, um, so actually, <clears throat> while I was maybe thinking that it would, you know, help me man up or whatever, what I actually discovered uh, was um, was that uh, I was not alone. I met other trans service members who were serving uh, very secretly, just like myself, and 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 just other service members in the uh, LGBTQ uh, community, and. Uh, at that time, I, it's hard to call it a community, but it we became more like a secret service. <laughs> mm-hmm. And you know, um, and so so it was uh, it was in that regard, in many regards, it was it was uh, that time of service uh, really uh, kind of set the direction for my life after. In a, in a very good and positive way. Well, you know, it's almost, you know, how they say, what doesn't break you makes you stronger. You thought that maybe it would break you into wanting to live this role that the rest of the world wanted for you. It made you stronger and being sharp. It did. That's, you're absolutely right. And, in fact, it made me stronger uh, in the way that I thought I was weak. And so, um, I mean, I guess what I want to say is it made me stronger in a way that uh, completely caught me by, um, oh, I look back on it now, and it's it's, um, kind of surprising, actually. But we had, like I said, we had to serve, you know, we served in secret. No one, no one could know. It was not, it was not a friendly environment in that regard. You know, and we know so many people under, you know, on before and, and even under Don't Ask, Don't Tell, you know, how that was. But as you think back about it and knowing the person that you are now, 
had you been in there, do you feel that, you know, you would have been even better if you'd been able to be your true, authentic self where you didn't have that cloud over you where you had to be, you know, secret about it? Absolutely. I think that, um, um, do you mean in the military or, or just in well, general? Well, well, well I want to go into, to, you know, what, what the president said. Um, but just, but just sure. you know, looking at it now, you know. When I, I look back at it now and, you know, everything that I did in the military back then, um, uh, you know, I, I would um, have been able to do had I transitioned back then. There, there was nothing uh, there were, um, that I could not have done. Um, but it would have been nice to serve openly it would have been, you know, I had some friends who um, I didn't, well, I don't know how to put it any other way. They didn't make it out alive. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that has haunted me and continues to, to haunt me. Um, there, you know, there was still a lot of drugs in the military, and I lost some friends to that. But... Um, you know, I knew, I just knew people who um, um, were uh, beaten up uh, pretty bad. And, and I, you know, I, I received a fair amount of that kind of abuse myself. And so, um, yeah, it certainly would have been easier. Um, and I think it would have been, um, I think it would have been, better for, uh, certainly for me and the others and but I also think it would have been better for the entire squadron I was in a squadron and um, I think it would have been I think it would have um, actually um, created more cohesion rather than um, this kind of tension that um, that we always always felt um, not just me and, and my friends but the, but within the unit within the yeah. squadron um, there was this always this kind of looking over your shoulder so and you know it was, seems like yeah, it seems like especially I mean since you know don't ask don't tell went away that what, what you're finding is I mean and even you know when this 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 little edicts came out, that people were like, like what you were talking about, the cohesion. And knowing that there's still young people who are like you were, you know, maybe getting in trouble, whatever, and here is this opportunity to see the world, you know, not necessarily, they might wouldn't be going into it to be broken, but to, to become stronger, to get out of this. How did it feel, particularly because you're such an activist, when you heard the president who's supposed to be all of our president, although we know apparently he's not. How did it feel when you, as a veteran even, as a veteran who has served your country, how did it feel when you heard the quote-unquote commander-in-chief say this about people who, for the same reason that you got into it, wanted to serve, and for some people who did have that whole patriotic 
reason that they wanted to just like go and serve their country. How, was that like a, a kick in the gut? Oh, let me tell you. Um, first of all, you know, I served prior to Don't Ask, Don't Tell. That didn't come about until uh, the Clinton presidency. But um, the, uh, you know, and, and I'll say this, um, everybody that I knew who served, you know, we, um, we, did, um, we did take pride in, in being, you know, serving our country, whether that was initially why we had enlisted or not. Um, but, um, you know, when a lot of people came home after Vietnam, it was, uh, there were protests. There, were, there was a lot of public display. The, the anti-war fervor in this country was, was just boiling over. And so soldiers came back and were made to, in many cases, feel like they had to defend themselves you know, for what they did whether it was a just war or an unjust war. And, and uh, um, that is not what I'm talking about. But um, when, uh, when, you know, when you think about the transition that the military went through, don't ask, don't tell was actually supposed to be better than the conditions under which I served, which was, if we find out, excuse my language, your ass is grass. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And and um, I had friends who went to the brig uh, and um, um, and spent a lot of time there. Um, and at first, don't ask, don't tell. I remember when that first came out, and I thought, well, that's something, you know. But it was a terrible compromise. And then when, um, you know, with um, President Barack Obama and and all the moves that he was making, it just looked like we had so much hope. We had all this momentum, it felt like, behind us. And then when Donald Trump, President Donald Trump, announced um, his decision to ban transgender service members, uh, I, um, I felt like um, he had waited all this time. <laughs> this is how it felt to me that he had waited all this time to um, basically spit on us, and that's how it felt, that he had um, told us, you know, um, no thanks, uh, we, we don't appreciate you. Um, and it just felt like a dirty trick. And, and I, I cried, I, and I was angry, and I was... Um, almost speechless, but it, it did. It felt like a, a kick in the gut, and then, and then uh, you know, when you're down, it was another kick in the head. And, um, and, it, and it scared me, quite frankly, um, how brazen he was uh, in, his, in his comments and how wrong um, he is in his thinking. And, um, and I just felt like, like he, he looked at me, it felt very personal. Mm -hmm. Obviously, I'm not the only transgender veteran in America, but 
it felt like he was looking right at me and said, you should never have been in the military and I am not going to honor you. And that's how that felt to me. It was terrible. It was a terrible feeling. And it, and it, and I still feel the same way. You can probably hear it in my voice. Mm-hmm. Um, that anybody would even have to think about it um, is appalling to me. I thought we had, I thought we had turned the corner, and and it just felt like we turned the corner, and he was standing right around the corner and punched us. <laughs> yeah. You know, and and to me, it also felt like you know. Because now, okay, we don't have a draft. It's a voluntary thing. But to me, it was almost like he was saying, like, you're not even second-class citizens, you know? I mean, you know, uh, I mean, there's some people who who can come in and we might take them. I mean, because even in the whole immigrant debate, he was talking about how some of the people, they have had a special visa or something where they could serve. But he was saying, uh, even though he wants to build a wall to keep them out. But he was saying to trans men and women, but we don't even want you. And if you're there, we want to get rid of you. That You know, it was like, it was saying like even less than second class citizen. And it was just like so horrendous to me. Uh, it was, um, it, you know, every person who serves, transgender or not, um, um, puts their life out at, um, uh, into the service, uh, into service for their, for their government, for their country, for their communities. And we all know that at any moment um, we could be called into some situation or some situation would find us uh, where we could, um, you know, potentially die. And and there were and there were situations when I served when that was the case, um, and um, and to say just to say that 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 no longer counts, you know, and you make a really good point too you, that you touched on. For a lot of us um, going into the, those of us who went into the military, I came from a family. I guess I look back. I never felt like it at the time, but I look back at it now, and we were poor. You know, we we didn't have a lot of money. We had seven kids, and and um, my father worked. My mother stayed at home, and it was tough. It was real tough. But uh, you know, the military was an opportunity to make something of yourself, to get out of of um, of a town that you know, remains economically depressed to this day, the whole Saginaw area, and um, to, uh, to join the military and make something of yourself, go to college when you get out, learn some skills, and see the world, and, and do the right thing, you know, and then to um, now be told that, you know, since or subsequent to his announcement on the trans military ban, we now we have a Department of Justice that says it's okay to discriminate against mm-hmm. uh, people in the uh, TLGBT, TLGBQ uh, community. That that's okay if you do it for religious or moral reasons, and um, and that's just so. So what are our options? You know, if you're a young trans person 
what are your options? And one of the options we had or could have had uh, was serving in the military to overcome that discrimination and the bias and the prejudice and so on that um, keeps our unemployment rate so high. And no community is more deeply affected by this um, as, the, as, the tra- as trans people of color where, you know, where so many things intersect and layer on top of each other. It's, um, it's, absolutely, it's, it's heartbreaking. And, it, and, it, and I think that I feel within the trans community this um there's a sense there is a sense of anger this desire to to take action but at the same time um this kind of uh low humming depression that mm. that no matter how hard i try am i am i going to get any closer to um you know to uh what full citizenship and that's that's you know I mean, we pay taxes and so on, but but it's okay to you know fire us and bump us around. Mm-hmm. Well, Sean, we're going to take our first break here on um, collections by Michelle Brown. Um, if you're just joining us, I'm talking with Shar Day of Import. She's a Vietnam Navy veteran. She's an educator. She's an activist. Um, we're talking in part about the trans ban that President Trump, I mean, I, I always stumble on it, uh, that our 45th president has put out there, uh, the other attacks on the LGBTQ community, and we will be right back. This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com. back with Shar Davenport. You know, Shar, as I listen to you, and I mean, the military has always been, you know, when you look at one of those pathways to better your life, like you said, there's education, um, into housing, uh, all these different things that, that being in the military can. And one of the things that, you know, that um, President Trump cited was tremendous medical costs. Okay, well, we don't have a health care, you know, he's doing everything to dismantle health care. But for many people, being in the military while they serve, and then as veterans afterwards, is that access to health care. So it's almost like you were saying, it's like, as you look at all of these ways, you know, if you're a young person and you're looking at 
what might be an untenable situation and how are you going to get out? Suddenly he's saying to, and even more and more, but he, you know, like I said, he started with trans and all the other rights. You're, you're shutting these doors to basically sort of saying like, well, tough, you know, tough. You know, you don't fit into our little box. So we're mm-hmm. going to deny you access to what's basic uh, American human effects, just worldwide. It's just human rights. It's just basic civil rights that it were being denied. Yeah, it, you know, it is. It is. I, I, I have to say that one of the... Um, one of the great benefits of having served is is the VA healthcare system. It's the largest healthcare system in the country, and um, and I know it receives a lot of bad press, and it and it probably deserves quite a bit of it. Um, but um, I go to um, uh, the, the Ann Arbor uh, facility hospital, and. Um, and I've gone to the, um, the, is it the John R. Dingle, I think it is, in mm-hmm. Detroit. And, uh, and they've both been, both been great. Um, I go to the VA in Ann Arbor because they have uh, a, a solid endocrinology program. I can get my hormone replacement therapy there thanks to mm-hmm. um, the previous administration, President Barack Obama, um, who... Uh, through directives, um, instructed the, the military to provide these types of health care services. And for a lot of veterans, um, it um, has, um, it quite frankly, saved lives. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and, um, excuse me, and, uh, you know, in the, I guess I want to say like a month, two months before the elections last year, before last November, um, the VA was actually, uh, had announced that it was preparing to offer um, surgery, transitional surgery. Um, a lot of people call, your listeners might know it as, gender reassignment surgery or sex reassignment surgery for transgender veterans who trans women like myself or and trans men um and i was selected as one of the recipients one of the first uh, people who would have that surgery and it would almost it would be in the va hospital in ann arbor and it was my understanding that that was the only hospital actually qualified to to perform that surgery, the VA hospital. And um, the uh, one week after the election, um, the director, I guess, or chairperson of the the Veterans uh, Administration announced that they were not going to do those surgeries. Mm. And so just here at the VA in Ann Arbor, uh, there were an awful lot of veterans who felt like they finally had a chance um, to receive the kind of health care that um, seemed to be available to others. And um, 
was um, medically necessary. And um, every major medical association, insurance companies agree that it's a medically necessary procedure, um, the gender reassignment surgery. And then that was yanked right out from under us. So, um, and that was just devastating uh, to a lot of people. And, um, and now we're scrambling. Um, we still receive our uh, hormone replacement therapy, our counseling, and, you know, a lot of our pre-surgical care. But um, the, uh, it's, a, it's an arduous process to get to that surgery. It, it can be expensive preparing for it. Um, and a lot of veterans just don't have that kind of money. We just, um, for whatever reason, uh, veterans are um, underemployed in this country. It seems like if there's one population that shouldn't be, it's, it's, it's us. It's veterans. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> seems that way. I don't think anybody should. But I, and I, I don't, so I don't like to apply that logic to like, what about me? But, mm-hmm. but, um, but, uh, uh, and now we see what he's doing with um, um, the Affordable Care Act and his promise to dismantle it altogether. And that's really for uh, thousands of people who are transgender, um, that's our lifeline. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and um, and so he's going after that too. It becomes so hard not to take it personally, even though, I mean, you know that it, it's not. Um, you know, it, it feels, it certainly does feel that uh, we've been segmented out. Um, so maybe it's not personal, but it's it's um, definitely targeted at us. Yeah, I know. I, I mean, it's like it's, it it is personal, but like you said, it, it's like targeting a group. But it is personal. You know, people always say, "Well, how many times do you have to come out?" Do you feel that you have to come out as a veteran? more like, and I'm sure that people who knew you knew you were a veteran, but do you feel that now you have to come out yet again as a trans veteran and talk about things that, you know, you might be a trans activist, but you don't have to talk about what happened at the Veterans Hospital, but now you have to stand up for those. So do you feel like this is once again said, I got to come out again? Well, oh boy. Um, You know, in a way, yeah, it's it's kind of like um, it's it's kind of like reemphasizing <laughs> my coming out. You know, I, I came out a long time ago, and then now it's kind of like, you know, hey, I really meant what I said. Let me say it a little bit louder, and um, um, and I I think that um, I think I think. Uh, not that many years ago, um, you know, people heard that, you know, they heard us and, and they, they were proud of us and they um, patted us on the back. But now, you know, and, and that was, an, that was being an ally, you know, mm-hmm. and, and now 
um, I tell people, you know, okay, allies, <laughs> now we got to ask you to do. We have to ask you to do something a little bit different, a little bit stronger, a little bit riskier. Um, it's not enough for you to say way to go. I need you to lock arms with me, and and walk with me, and and um, be willing to take some of the hits mm-hmm. uh, because. You know, because we need you. We really, really need you. And um, and uh, that's a big ask. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's a big. That's a big thing to ask people to do. Yeah, you know, and I and I think that it's really important. You know, as as I was thinking about listening to this and and thinking about you know how this impacted the trans community and talking to some trans people, some who had, in fact, like you said, served recently and and even if like they were you know would those people who I served with like you said lock arms with them and sort of say you know all of this is like BS or even if they had served with them and knew that they were trans and knew that what Trump was saying was BS would they lock arms and they needed them to sort of stand up because you know, if you're in the trenches with someone, if you're on the ship with someone, if you're in the Air Force with someone, and you know that this person is your, got your back, just like you have theirs, you know, mm-hmm. that's really important to say, you know, because he's saying, uh, oh, and it's causing disruption and all like that. And you heard many allies you know, and maybe some who, who hadn't really thought of themselves as allies saying, you know, I served with so-and-so. And, you know, they were right there. We had, um, who is it? I can't think of a name. Who was a legislator who said, you know, like, if the person who had pulled her out when her plane went down, she didn't care because they were there doing their job. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, so that's, like, really, really important that, you know, that we have to have our allies sort of step up and, and push back. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And, um, and um, you know, I think it's, I think, you know, his playbook uh, and the playbook of Mike Pence and the playbook of Jeff, Jeff Sessions and the playbook of so many people in that administration who have come and gone, by the way, um, um, is to um, uh, isolate uh, groups of people and to kind of point at them and say, they're the problem. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, um, and I, you know, and, and certainly the transgender community is not the only community that this has ever happened to or will ever happen to. And I think in that way, <clears throat> um, I think our strength is not just in our allies, but in the coalitions that we build. Um, the different organizations. So, for instance, um, the uh, you know I find myself um, uh, aligning myself, for instance, with um, Black Lives Matter. You know, mm-hmm. um, and uh, because um, in many ways, uh, it's it's uh, we have a common cause, a, a common problem. 
and um, I find myself aligning with um, um, a lot of um, uh, a lot of organizations in the women's rights movement. For instance, you know, I'm now working with Emily's List, uh, with, mm-hmm. whose goal is to get women uh, elected, and and I go into their meeting, and I'm a woman just there with all the other women. And that's pretty powerful. And so, so um, it's not just allyship, but it's also coalition building. And, and one of the things that I feel, um, one of the things that attracts me to the National LGBTQ Task Force and the work we're doing there is that we know that 70% of people of faith whether they attend services or not, 70% of the of people of faith actually support um, uh, um, complete and full civil rights and protection of our civil rights uh, for transgender people. So if that's true, then then you know then we then where are they? And so we're bringing training to those places of worship who want to be better allies, uh, better partners, better comrades, and, and we're helping them understand what does that mean? What does, what does that mean for you and what does it mean for your congregation? And, you know, how to be uh, not just tolerant or accepting, but affirming as well. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we have a, a long road ahead of us. Uh, to, to get there, but but um, one step at a time. That's how every mountain has ever been climbed. Mm-hmm. Now you know, you had forty years in activism, and I know if you're like me, like I mean, I used to love waking up to NPR, and because but now even NPR, it's like you wake up and it's like, okay, what is it this morning? You know. What is it this morning? You know, what do I have to go fight today? And here you are. You are wading in. I mean, you know, on so many levels, you're a veteran. You're wading in on, you know, you're stepping into these women's spaces and saying, I'm here. You know, we are. Let's talk about women's issues. You're stepping into faith spaces where you have people in the name of being quote unquote Christians and a Christian nation are doing horrible things. Forty years I mean, do you ever say like, you know, maybe I'll just find, you know, my little place in the sun and just say, forget it? Well, um you know, I've been involved in a lot of a lot of things. Um um you know, going uh, quite a ways back, but my involvement in the in the trans movement is just, you know, probably the last four or five years or so. Um, but I've learned a lot, and but yeah, there are times um, when really all I want to do is just uh, lay down on the floor and just kind of close my eyes and. Um, just uh you know just lay there <laughs> and and sometimes it is so overwhelming that um 
you know, that I can't get my mind around all that is happening. You know, every day I get emails and messages and phone calls from community, from uh, allies and trans people in communities who are desperately seeking medical care, um, trying to um, get their children who are transgender uh, through school um, so, so that they can use the bathroom at school, so they can play, you know, participate in extracurricular activities, and on and on and on. And, and this is happening in every community in America. And that's when it gets overwhelming to me. That's when, you know, uh, I'm also a board member with uh, Transgender Michigan, and, and I happen to be one of the people who answers their helpline. And, and sometimes, you know, it seems like the phone just never stops ringing. And, um, and, and they're not just, you know, it's one thing to, to talk about bathrooms, you know, for instance, just to raise that issue. But it's not really about bathrooms at all. What it is is denying someone the opportunity to participate and contribute um, to their local community. Uh, and that, you know, and any time that that happens in a community, um, it, 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 um, it speaks to a much larger, larger issue and, and concerns. Uh, I worry that, um, like anybody, it's like, are we ever going to get there? You know, mm-hmm. uh, I think there's this misunderstanding that the trans movement, you know, started when um, Laverne Cox was on um, Orange is the New Black. And I love, Laver- I love Laverne Cox. Mm-hmm. And, um, but, you know, we've been around for, for a long. Mm-hmm. thousands of years, you know. So mm-hmm. um, as long as anyone, just, you know, I would say. But so um, it's always been there. And mm-hmm. um, in today's climate, it just seems so intense at times. But, yeah. You know, I was talking. I'm just going to say, I I know activists and advocates all all around this country and in other countries, and and a lot of times they say, you know, we ask each other, "How you doing?" and and everyone, everyone will say, "I'm tired, I'm tired," Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm really, really busy, and and. and we're all we're all tired, you know, and knowing though that you're not alone um, really helps. One of my great fears is that trans people will begin to isolate themselves again, and uh, that's and that's a terrible, terrible thing to have happen. Mm. Well, you know, um, I it's just, yeah, when people talk about like like with Laverne. Um, I know Andrea Jenkins, who's in lives in Minnesota, and who's also running for political office. And uh-huh. um, she works with the Treader Foundation, and she is documenting for them trans histories. And she has uh, interviewed people. I, I asked her once. I said, "Well, what's the oldest and the youngest?" And the oldest person she had interviewed was someone in their 80s, 
who had been trans uh-huh. and living out as a, and the youngest one was someone in their six, who was 16. And I know that we share a mutual friend um, and Roz Gold Keith who started like Stand for Trans. And, you know, right. and, and I was talking, you know, I mean, it's like, you know, like this great world goes around. And I was talking to Monica Roberts, who's in mm-hmm. Houston. And she was saying how one of the things that she thinks how important it is that she is out there is because to let people, when, especially when you see all these reports of young trans people being killed, it's like yeah. she goes out there and she says, like, look, you know, I'm in my 50s. Look, I'm here. I'm doing this work, you know, and she talks about it. But then also how when you talk about things like stand with trans and, and how Roz has made this space not only for Hunter, her son, but for other parents and stuff to, to this is new territory, well, being a parent is new territory, but, but how do you, you make it to where it's easier for these kids? Where Monica was like, you know, hey, it wasn't like that. And I've talked to people who have talked about, um, um, like, well, like Liliana Reyes, who was saying, like, her parents were really accepting until one day her mother was going through her room and found her girl stuff, and then, boom, it was like that. And then you have, like, these new kids who have parents who are affirming and supportive. And in your life, you've seen all of this. Does it give you hope for the, for the babies coming but also kind of sadness that is that we are still fighting these battles? Yes. Uh, yes. Um, I, through Roz and Liliana and uh, Liliana Reyes with affirmations, Roz Gould Keith, Stand With Trans, and with the, um, uh, some of the folks down at the Ruth Ellis Center, um, you know, I've met, I've met uh, um, so many wonderful, wonderful young trans people, um, as young as um, eight or nine, and mm-hmm. and uh, probably younger. I don't even know, but but um, I know this, and and I have I have felt this for a long time, and having lost some folks to suicide and. And being lucky to be here myself, I guess one could say. But um, I know that that um, uh, I um, I know that. What am I trying to say? I'm sorry. I'm stumbling all over my words here. But um, that um, when we look at and a lot of people talk about the the attempted suicide rate in the trans community and we can argue about what the numbers are but if it's you know it's it's very high and so Mm -hmm. about 40 percent will have attempted uh, suicide at least once in their life but we know um, that regardless of why a young person or an older person would attempt suicide we know that what we know what the cure is for the vast majority of that of those attempted suicides and that is love and Mm -hmm. when a kid can have a bad day at school but come home and be able to talk to their parents 
and their parents love them and respect them and see them, you know, they're not invisible to their parents. They, they don't have to fear going home. That, that can make all the difference, you know, to a young, especially to a young child. Because, you know, I don't know if this is true for everybody, but when I was younger, I kind of felt like my parents were somehow invincible, you know, that they could just, they could just do anything. And, and um, you know, if somebody picked on me, well, I knew, you know, that, um, that my father, you know, would have my back um, mm-hmm. in, in, a lot of, in a lot of things. Um, to know that um, as a trans person is, has to be just the most, I would imagine, the most validating experience you could ever have. You know, to know that your family is on your side. And this is why I think the work that the task force does uh, is so important. Because if you're a family that goes to church and to know that that entire congregation has your back. Um, um, you know, when you go to school, it, I'm not saying that it makes everything go away. But it doesn't seem like it has to be the end of the world. And so I think um, I live my life uh, very out and in the open. I do want younger people to see that. I teach up at Oakland University, and I want my students, trans or not, uh, I want my students to see that whatever um, um, uh, comes at you, the decision that you have, that you can make um, is how you respond to that and um, and that we're all scared <laughs> you know mm-hmm. we're all we're all scared uh, but we're better together we're bigger on the inside and um, and that's um, that's just so important uh, I the trans students wherever I've taught um, have um, have gone out of their way to make sure I know um, that they that that they're looking at me and watching me, and for a lot of them, I'm, I'm kind of like a mentor, mm-hmm. and I take that very I take that very very seriously, you know, and I, and I want them to see that the only thing I you know the things I care about in this world are. Are the, you know, I do care about the environment and climate change, and I care about, um, you know, immigration rights, and I care about uh, what's happening with police violence in this country and poverty and hunger and, and you know, the condition of our streets and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, but, um, but, I, but I'm caring about it as me. Uh, and and I don't change suits or mm-hmm. change change who I am to be an activist for all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And, but um, but on a very personal level, uh, my life has been for the last four or five years has been focused almost exclusively on transgender rights. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, we're going to take our second break here on the show, and Char, we'll be right back, um, because I want to talk to you a little bit more about the task force and a couple of other things, Um, but 
we are you're listening to collections by Michelle Brown and we will be right back Collections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can subscribe now and listen to the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode. back with Shar Davenport. You know, Shar, one of the things that you said which is which is sort of which is really the premise behind the show is like you're a trans person. But as a person, a human being, bottom line, human being, that you cannot, you know, say, Oh well I'm only gonna focus on this and not be concerned about the environment. You can't um not be concerned about, you know, violence you can't you know you can't like sort of say well i'm only going to work on this one part and it seems like often especially members of the trans community it's almost like uh it's like you have like this super bullseye on your back you know you walk in and they're going like oh well she's an activist she's a woman she's trans now she's going to talk about veterans rights but you know that's your world all of these pieces are part of your world, and you're affected by them. How do you take all of these things coming at you, and then within the task force, which is one of the larger LGBTQ organizations that's working, how do you bring that in to where you say, well, you know what, yeah, we have to talk about this, but, you know, we should also find a way to bring this part in and to bring this part in because we don't live in a vacuum and to form those coalitions to work collaboratively with other movements that are all working towards social justice. Uh, wow. Um, you know, um, uh, Michelle Fox Phillips, who is the executive director for the Gender Identity Network uh, mm-hmm. in Detroit. And she and I are um, uh, very good friends. And one of the things that we did a number of years ago was um, we actually had an impromptu meeting in Ferndale, right out on the street. And there were about probably 15 trans people there. And we were trying to figure out how do we, um, how do, you know, where is our voice? You know, when we, we talk about, you know, we want a seat at the table. And one of the things that was, and the reason that we were concerned about that was that <clears throat> there were nonprofit organizations, and I don't need to name any names, um, all of which were, uh, are very good and well-intentioned, um, 
making decisions about a strategy uh, for transgender rights. But we weren't in the conversation. We weren't being um, included. You know, the great activist, uh, Bambi Salcedo, a friend of mine in Los Angeles, said, um, you know, if you say you're going to represent us, then you need to include us. Mm-hmm. Um, and about a year before that, Michelle and I said, you know, trans people speak for trans people, period. And so um, it's not, uh, you know, we appreciate everything everybody does for us, but, but if we're not in the table, if we're not in the discussion, if we're not helping develop those strategies, then then um, then whatever steps forward we take um, um, are going to happen to us, not with us. And mm-hmm. so uh, that, was, that was really important. And Michelle and I often talk about that moment and that kind of underlying philosophy. But I began to think about um, different organizations and, and I... And I realized, you know, I support that. I support what they're doing. Um, and I don't know if they, uh, in their discussions, like say, um, you know, say it's, um, a local Democratic Party um, council or the library board or um, whatever, um, I don't know if they're going to sit down and say, you know, and include us in that converse, in their conversation. So we need to be there um, because mm-hmm. if, you, if they don't see you, then you're not there and, and you're, not, you're not going to be um, a part of that discussion. And so um, I, I, I just started going to all these meetings <laughs> I go to a lot of meetings, <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, but you know, and I will uh, speak out. I went to a, a regional veterans healthcare meeting up in Saginaw, and and we were talking about the delivery of healthcare um, at the uh, Saginaw uh, VA hospital, which is a wonderful hospital, by the way. Mm-hmm. And I and during the meeting they went around and asking people what they would like to see. And, and I just focused on transgender veteran health care. That was why I went there, and that's what I talked about. And by the time we walked out of there, um, they came up with three top concerns, and uh, one, of, one of them was transgender health care services became a priority. But whether it was me or someone else, um, but the point is, is if, if I wasn't there, then, then would that have even come up? Mm-hmm. And, and quite frankly, the answer is no. <laughs> and, and so, um, so it, and in one sense, it's a little bit selfish, you know, to show up and be on these boards and be part of those discussions on um, connected but tangential issues, I guess. Or, and uh, so I knew that the discussion was about healthcare for veterans, and I, I made sure that one of the threads that ran through that was, was veterans. 
uh, transgender veterans' health care. And that's part of the um, what I what I want other young activists to be aware of um, that that kind of um, um, I guess like you know intersectionality I think, but also um, sometimes I think um, if you want sometimes we have intersections that we really want and mm-hmm. and. Um, I can't make the VA come over to me, but I can bend my road a little bit over to them, and then we're on the same path. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so that's, I don't know, uh, I'm not sure that answers uh, your question, but I think, I think uh, showing up is a, is a big, big thing. A lot of people who might... A lot of people say may, may say um, they've never met a transgender person, um, and maybe that's true, or at least they didn't know that they did. Um, um, and and so whatever it is they believe about the people in the transgender community comes from outside sources. Uh, so if you're at that meeting, if you're Speaking, if you're an active member of your local community, they know you, and they can see that the world hasn't uh, fallen apart. And so, even if the conclusion they come to is, "Well, she's a good trans person," or "He's a good trans person," um, that's at least a step forward. But almost always, um, people find it harder to pass laws that discriminate against you once they know you. And, and so uh, it's a culture change. You know, yeah, we mm-hmm. need new laws, but then we need people that support those laws as well. Well, Char, um, we're coming to the end of the road here. Um, I know that detail, uh, creating change, I always encourage people, if you've never been, you should at least go to one. It will create change within you. It's going to be in Washington this year, right? I mean, in 2018. Yes, it is. Okay. Yes, and will yes you, it is. And will you be there? <laughs> I wouldn't miss it. <laughs> I, I will be there. I will be there. And, and, uh, and you know, when you go there, I, if you're looking for me, just, Ask a staff person if they've seen Char, and they'll track me down. <laughs> Are you going to be there, Michelle? It, it is my plan to be there. I mean, I I didn't go, but I went to the one in Chicago. Then I missed the next one. But this, you know, I try to go like every other year. You know, sure, so sure. it is my definitely my plan. It's almost like to me, it's like a family reunion. I see so many people and meet new friends, and it's it's just. It is a changing experience, so I always encourage everyone to try and go. Shara, I want to, once again, thank you for your service, not only as a veteran, but to the community, to the work that you continue to do. I know that some of those days when you're laying on the floor, I'm laying on the floor here with a glass of wine, and we can commiserate, (laughs) (laughs) and we can commiserate. But um, like you said, we are stronger together. And I want to thank you for taking the time to be with me today and to tell about your experience and to share some thoughts on and hopefully 
people will think about this, and as they hear these these tweets or executive orders or whatever come out, that we will come together and stand up and say, that's not our America. That's not what we believe in. So I want to thank you again. Um, if I don't see you before, I hope to see you in D.C. Absolutely. Can I just say uh, one yes. quick closing thought? The mm-hmm. 2018 elections, uh, well, the 2017 elections certainly are important. The 2018 elections are probably as important as any election uh, cycle that I can remember. We can change Congress. Absolutely. And you know, and there's also, in fact, yesterday I was at someone, and there are people out there who are trying to change the gerrymandering that has happened it's horribly here in Michigan, but across the country, but especially here in Michigan, to who represents us and to have a, a voice of the people. So 2018 mm-hmm. is important on so many levels. Yes, it Bushar, is. Again, I want to thank you. Um, don't be surprised if I call you and have you back on here about something. Maybe probably after creating change, I'd like to do a debrief on it. So don't be surprised if I give you another call. But oh, that'd be th- wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you again. And you have a the rest of your day. Enjoy this beautiful fall weather. Thank you, Michelle. It was a pleasure. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm. Well, we've come to the end of another Collections by Michelle Brown. I want to, again, thank our guests for her service and thank all of our veterans out there, particularly those who served in silence, unable to be their authentic selves, and also those who are serving now being their authentic selves without that over them. And we must fight to keep that so that we can all serve it because It's better when you bring your full self in everything that you do. So I want to thank you, our listening audience. You can listen to the podcast each week by following Collections by Michelle Brown on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. That's it for today. Join us next week when I will introduce you to another amazing individual who's living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change, right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you.